Welcome to the November 26, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we will review a study that reveals a previously unknown role for the canonical wind signaling pathway in the regulation of granulocyte production in steady-state and emergency granulopoiesis. Examine the discordance in different assays that measure factor VIII activity after adenoviral-associated gene therapy, and learn about the dynamics of declining antibody levels in repeat COVID-19 convalescent plasma donors. Our first topic is a study entitled, Beta-catenin TCF-LEF signaling promotes steady state and emergency granulopoiesis via GCSF receptor upregulation by Petra Danik and Merixel Alberic-Jorda at the Institute of Molecular Genetics of the Czech Academy of Sciences in Prague and international colleagues. Granulocytes serve as a first line of defense against pathogens. Adequate numbers are critical for survival as demonstrated by severe and often fatal infections in patients with congenital or iatrogenic neutropenia. Given their short half-life, neutrophils need to be constantly replenished to maintain steady-state neutrophil counts. When neutrophils are being consumed during severe systemic infection, granulopoietic output is massively enhanced to meet the high demand. Consequently, an intricate and redundant regulatory network consisting of cytokines and growth factors, their cognate receptors, and downstream transcriptional programs has evolved to sustain appropriate, demand-adapted granulocyte numbers. Danik and colleagues identified the canonical wind signaling pathway as yet another important regulator of granulopoiesis. Utilizing a murine model, the authors employed a mouse expressing a truncated dominant negative form of the human TCF4 transcription factor that specifically abrogates the beta-catenin TCF-LEF interaction. Non-canonical wind signaling pathways and beta-catenin cytoplasmic functions were preserved in this experimental system, allowing them to study the specific role of the beta-catenin TCF-LEF transcription complex. Disruption of the beta-catenin TCF-LEF interaction resulted in the accumulation of immature cells and reduced granulocytic differentiation. Mechanistically, dominant negative TCF4 progenitors exhibited downregulation of the CSF3R gene, which encodes the GCSF receptor. In addition to finding reduced GCSF receptor levels, they observed attenuation of downstream STAT3 phosphorylation after GCSF treatment and impaired GCSF-mediated differentiation. Chromatin immunoprecipitation assays confirmed direct binding of TCF-LEF factors to the promoter and putative enhancer regions of the CSF3R gene. The investigators also found that inhibition of beta-catenin signaling compromised activation of the emergency granulopoiesis program that requires maintenance and expansion of myeloid progenitors. For example, dominant negative TCF4 mice were more susceptible to Candida albicans infection and more sensitive to 5-fluorouracil-induced granulocytic regeneration. Importantly, Danik and colleagues found that genetic and chemical inhibition of beta-catenin TCF-LEF signaling in human CD34 cells reduced granulocytic differentiation, whereas its activation enhanced myelopoiesis. In summary, the investigators found that beta-catenin TCF-LEF complex directly regulates GCSF receptor levels and consequently controls proper differentiation of myeloid progenitors into granulocytes in steady state 
and emergency granulopoiesis. In his accompanying commentary, Stefan Betcher from the University Hospital Zurich in Switzerland notes that while the study provides important novel insights into the regulation of steady state and emergency granulopoiesis, a number of questions remain unanswered. These include, which of the more than a dozen wind ligands stimulate granulocytic differentiation from hematopoietic progenitors? Which cell types secrete these wind ligands and where are they located? Do these ligands increase during emergency conditions? And if so, how is the secretion being regulated, for instance, during inflammation or infection? Betcher concludes that it might be tempting to explore the use of pharmacological stimulation of canonical wind signaling to boost granulopoiesis in clinical settings of neutropenia, such as congenital neutropenia, inherited bone marrow failure syndromes, or myelodysplastic syndromes. Our next topic today is a study entitled Activity of Transgene-Produced B-Domain-Deleted Factor 8 in Human Plasma Following AAV5 Gene Therapy by Stefan Rosen from Rossix AB in Mondal, Sweden, Christian Vetterman from Biomarin Pharmaceutical in Novato, California, and colleagues. These investigators evaluated the discordance in factor VIII activity levels after adenoviral vector gene therapy between one-stage clot and chromogenic substrate methods. Measurement of coagulation factor activity has emerged as a key endpoint for determining treatment success of adeno-associated virus, or AAV-based gene therapies, for inherited bleeding disorders such as hemophilia A, which is caused by genetic deficiency in coagulation factor VIII. AAV gene therapies aim to complement this deficiency by providing a shortened yet fully functional version of factor VIII. Given the monogenic nature of hemophilia A, increased factor VIII activity in plasma should ameliorate the bleeding phenotype and is considered a predictive marker for clinical outcomes. This has implications for patient management and drug development, since use of factor VIII activity as an endpoint can permit a more objective evaluation of efficacy than patient-reported annual bleeding rates. In recent gene therapy trials of Voloctagene roxaparvivec, an AAV-containing B-domain-deleted factor VIII transgene, a discrepancy was recognized in transgene-produced factor VIII activity between the one-stage clotting assay and the chromogenic substrate assay, henceforth referred to as the OS and CS assays. With the anticipated clinical use of AAV gene therapies in hemophilia A, the authors sought to better understand how the activity of transgene-produced factor VIII could be reliably determined. They also felt it was critical to compare transgene-derived factor VIII activity to the activity of recombinant factor VIII products that have served as the standard of care over the past three decades. The authors first confirmed that activity of the transgene-produced factor VIII was between 1.3 to 2 times higher in the OS compared to CS assays in patients receiving gene therapy, whereas recombinant factor VIII products had lower OS than CS activity. Transgene-produced and recombinant factor VIII showed comparable activity in the CS assays, suggesting that the diverging activities arose in the OS assay. The team then conducted a field study at 13 sites comparing OS and CS assays. The OS kits used seven different APTT reagents and three different types of surface activators, and the six different CS kits used four different chromogenic factor 10A substrates. 
In their analysis of over 1,000 unique samples from AAV Factor VIII gene therapy recipients, they found higher OS than CS activity for transgene-produced Factor VIII, irrespective of assay reagents, kits, or test site. The consistent magnitude and directionality of the difference between OS and CS difference across laboratories suggested that the underlying mechanism is intrinsic to transgene-produced Factor VIII and not an artifact of any particular assay kit or testing facility. Further experiments in two participants showed that transgene-produced Factor VIII accelerated early Factor XA and thrombin formation which may explain the higher OS activity based on a kinetic bias between OS and CS assay readout times. Despite the faster onset of coagulation, global thrombin levels were unaffected in a thrombin generation assay. The authors subsequently evaluated whether both the OS and CS assays remained relevant for clinical outcomes. They conducted a correlation analysis between participant-reported, treated joint bleeds and median factor VIII activity in four-week intervals. Using data from two gene therapy trials, they found that both OS and CS activity strongly correlated with predicted joint bleed frequency in both trials. At levels less than 15 international units per deciliter, the OS assay was associated with higher predicted joint bleed frequency compared to the CS assay. The authors therefore recommended that clinical phenotypes should be observed carefully during clinical practice to evaluate how transgene-produced factor VIII activity aligns with the theoretical risk of breakthrough bleeds in severe, moderate, and mild hemophilia A states, which correspond to factor VIII activity levels of less than 1, 1 to 5, and 5 to 40 international units per deciliter. At or above a median factor VIII activity of 40 international units per deciliter, by definition the lowest non-hemophilic level, the predicted joint bleed frequency was close to zero using either assay. The investigators conclude that both assays are clinically meaningful to distinguish hemophilic from non-hemophilic conditions after administration of factor VIII gene therapy. The CS assay has been chosen as the standard for hemophilia AAV gene therapy trials because of its broad utility for non-native factor VIIs and its conservative measurement of hemostasis, thereby allowing efficacy comparisons between various factor VIII products. However, Many coagulation laboratories do not perform chromogenic assays. In laboratories where only an OS assay is available, a laboratory-specific OS-CS conversion factor might be required for gene therapy samples to interpolate the corresponding activity in the CS assay. In her accompanying commentary, Margaret Ragney from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center suggests that identifying the optimal factor level for efficacy, assuring safety, and ultimately understanding durability and the reason why factor levels fall with time are of critical importance. The recent FDA decision to require longer-term data on AAV factor VIII gene therapy recipients should provide more important insights. Our final topic today is a manuscript by José Perrault and René Bazin from EMA Quebec in Quebec, Canada, and colleagues, entitled Waning of SARS-CoV-2 RBD Antibodies in Longitudinal Convalescent Plasma Samples with Four Months After Symptom Onset. Currently, more than 100 clinical trials are investigating transfusion of convalescent plasma as a means to reduce the severity of disease and help resolve infection more rapidly in patients with COVID-19. While therapeutic benefits have been recently reported, 
prior studies were not randomized or only reported on a few patients. One of the primary hypotheses that explains the benefit of convalescent plasma, or CCP, is of course the presence of SARS-CoV-2 neutralizing antibodies. Consequently, several groups have included neutralizing antibody titers as a criterion for the selection of CCP units to be transfused. A good correlation between neutralizing antibodies and SARS-CoV-2 spike protein receptor binding domain, or RBD, antibody titers has been reported, and therefore, Analysis of SARS-CoV-2 spike RBD antibodies using ELISA represents a valuable tool for initial characterization of CCP. The agency responsible for blood supply in Quebec, named HEMA Quebec, has been involved in the collection and testing of CCP in the CONCOR-1 clinical trial. The study was designed to evaluate the effect of CCP in reducing the risk of intubation or death in adult patients hospitalized for COVID-19. Potential donors were recruited after at least 14 days of resolution of COVID-19 symptoms. Although donors reported symptoms of different intensity, none of them were hospitalized for COVID-19. The presence of antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 RBD was determined in 15 patients using their semi-quantitative ELISA assay. Changes from baseline measurements were modeled with the use of a linear mixed effects model for repeated measures with fixed effects for sex, age, and time since symptom onset. Results indicated that the level of anti-RBD antibodies at first donation varied greatly between donors. However, a decrease in anti-RBD antibody level between first and last donation was observed for all donors. To better illustrate the evolution of the anti-RBD antibody response over time, their relative levels were calculated at successive quartiles using the first time point as reference. There was no significant difference in titers between quartiles 1 and 2, or days 33 to 54 and 54 to 69 after symptom onset, nor between the second and third quartiles, or days 54 to 69 and 70 to 84. However, there was a marked decline in antibody titers from the third to the fourth quartile, or days 85 to 114, where the mean and median titers decreased by 37% and 70% respectively. The authors next sought to determine whether the decline in antibody titers could be a result of repeated donations. However, they found no correlation between the number of donations and the overall decline in anti-RBD antibody levels. The decrease in titer values during a period of about 20 days is reminiscent of the plasma IgG half-life of 21 days, suggesting that de novo synthesis of anti-RBD antibodies stopped between the third and fourth quartiles in all CCP donors. This time frame is consistent with the first wave of humoral response during which short-lived plasma cells actively secrete pathogen-specific antibodies until the antigen is eliminated. This is expected to be followed by the emergence of a cellular memory response that could play a major role in the long-term protection against reinfection. In their commentary on the study, Beth Shaz from Duke University and Claudia Cohn from the University of Minnesota point out that effective convalescent plasma should contain antibody levels that correlate with measured improvements in patient outcome and that further studies are needed to determine the necessary antibody level to achieve optimal patient outcomes. The study conducted by Perot and colleagues highlights the inter-individual variability in antibody levels as well as the declining antibody levels over time. Shaz and Cohn suggest that since higher antibody levels correlate with disease severity, hospitals should encourage specific patient populations to donate, 
and blood centers should develop processes to identify high titer donors and take measures to encourage multiple repeat donations. Most importantly, these products need to be given early in the hospital or disease course in order to have optimal therapeutic effect. For a list of additional authors as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.